Let me talk to you about Queen Elizabeth II. Australia is, uh, has its formal name as uh, the Commonwealth of Australia, and our country is also a representative democracy and a constitutional monarchy, with Queen Elizabeth II as our head of state. In reality, she doesn't actually have much power, as we know. Um, she's more of a symbolic head. She signs off on some things, but she has been the longest monarch reigning in British history, so I guess we give her a lot of respect for that. And it will be a very strange day, the day she dies, because she has been queen for most people's lives in the Commonwealth. You know, uh, if you're under the age of 60, she's been your queen your whole life, which is amazing. But when we read in the Bible talk about kings and queens and monarchs, it seems just so foreign and antiquated, doesn't it? It just seems like another universe. It seems like a fantasy movie or book. It doesn't seem that relevant to us in Australia. And in reality, I think there's a good reason for that because I think in Australia, we're pretty sceptical about the idea of one person ruling over everyone else. We've seen so many bad examples in an essay that C.S. Lewis wrote that you can read in um, a book called Present Concerns, he said this. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find that they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle once said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him. But I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. But just imagine for one second if there could be a king who was fit to rule. Imagine if there was a king who who could be fit to rule, not just Australia, but the whole world, with wisdom, with love, with justice. If this person were to emerge, I think all the governments in the world would run and hide because they would know that their time was up. The people would go and submit to this new monarch. Uh, This person would be so wise and so powerful that they could deal with the world's issues straight away. Climate change. They would just make decisions and government, uh, nations would change what they did. They would fix the refugee crisis. They would fix extreme poverty. Imagine that kind of king. Imagine further though, let's just play around with the thought experiment. Imagine a king who could rule over your individual life. Some people might feel wary about this idea, like nervous about this, but imagine a good and true and perfect and just king who actually could rule your heart. A king who could bring order and peace to your life. Think of everything that's outside of your control in your life right this moment and imagine a king who could actually bring order to all that chaos, that mess. A king who could wave their scepter and bring order to your life. 
There are many leaders in the world who promise all kinds of things. They promise peace and prosperity, but none of them have been able to lead in that way, have they? If that king were to exist, I'm sure we would happily submit to his authority. So there is something antiquated and and strange about the notion of living under a monarch when we think about the British monarchy. But if we imagine this concept in the ideal, well, it actually sounds very exciting. It, It stirs my heart. I would love that scenario. Now let's talk about priests. Technically speaking, I am a, I'm a priest. I say technically because, well, actually I am one in the Anglican Church. That's, I have a license to show it. But um, I don't walk around sort of saying, oh, my name's Peter, I'm a priest. You know, I sort of play down that title. It's, I find it a bit weird. Um, I mean, I know the, the Bible talks about the fact that all Christians are, are priests in the sense that we all have access to God. But in that institutional use of the word priest... Uh, it brings up images of middle-aged people with fat guts and sort of black shirts and dog collars and just, I don't know, bad breath. You know, I, I, priest makes me think of the institution of the church in a bad way. Like, at worst, the word priest, it, it evokes the worst images. You know, you think about the child abuse in the, in the, in the church in the, over the last 20, 20th century that's been in the, in the Royal Commission. Even like, you think of things like The Vicar of Dibley, which is a funny show, you know, fair enough, but there's something sad about The Vicar of Dibley. So that's why I play down the whole priest thing. Like, I, even when I hang out with the bishop and the archbishops, uh, the archbishop and the bishops, I, I don't even wear my dog collar, I just dress like this, because I, I don't want to play up that priest name too much. I only put on the dog collar if I'm actually, you know, forced to a gunpoint. I, I, I identify more, you know, with pastor maybe than priest as a word. Sorry for all the you purest Anglicans in, in the room. I'm sure what I've described too is probably common a common th- perception of the word priest in, in Melbourne. Like, you know, most people don't think priest cool. You know, they don't. And even in history, though, this is not a recent thing. Even in history, priests have had a bad rap. Uh, English poet William Blake, he wrote this little ditty, he says, As the caterpillar chooses the fairest leaves to lay her eggs on, the priest lays his curse on the fairest joys. Priest as the killjoy. Think of Jane Austen, what Jane Austen has written about parish priests. Remember Mr. Collins in Crime and Prejudice. <laughs> now, 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 Jane Austen knows about priests, because I think her dad, her father was a clergyman. Remember when Ingley, uh, Elizabeth dances with Mr. Collins who has the hot story uh, at the dance and uh, she says it's a dance of mortification. That's how she describes it. And she says that uh, you know Mr. Collins is so awkward and, and solemn and he gives her all the shame and misery which a disagreeable partner for a couple of dancers can give. And what Jane Austen does is she, she's very interested in the church because she's a Christian, she's got a passionate faith, but what she sees are clergy who are not passionate about their faith. She, she, she says about Mr. Collins that he's by no means an aspirant to the sainthood. Who would want to be an Anglican priest or a Catholic priest or any kind of priest? And so when we read in the Bible the word priest and priests performing sacrifices... I think that also seems a bit foreign and a bit strange. 
in another, from another universe. But actually, you need a priest. In fact, I'll go further. You, 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 you long for a priest. You desire a priest. And so do I. Even if this is a sublimated thought we put in the back of our subconscious, we really do desire a priest. And you're thinking, what is he talking about? Would it, wouldn't it be incredible to have a priest, not like, not like Mr. Collins, not like the Vicar of Dibley, not like Peter Caroline, but a priest who could really take away all your shame, all your regrets, all your guilt. Imagine a priest who could connect you directly to God. Imagine a priest who wasn't just the flavour of the month preacher, who everyone is talking about and downloading on their iPhone for the podcast, but a priest who understands you perfectly like nobody else. And a priest who understands God perfectly like nobody else and offers you direct access to him. If there were a priest like that, you would drop everything, you would change churches, leave Mary Creek behind and go to that church if you could find that priest. You would say, sign me up, I want to start tithing now, I want to do ministry in this church with that priest. So when we consider the notion of the priesthood, it can seem strange when we read about it in the Bible. There are parts of the word that doesn't sit with us very well. But when we consider this idea of a perfect priest, this priest who can really remove your shame, change your life, connect you to God, then that kind of priest is very appealing. We'll just hold those two thought experiments of the ideal king and the ideal priest in your head and let me tell you a story. And this story is of the great King David. And he was sitting in his palace one morning doing his devotions, looking out the window from the palace across Jerusalem, thinking about his subjects, his people, the Israelites. He was reading the scriptures and praying. And he opened up his Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, He turned to Genesis because that's what he'd been reading in his quiet time. And he picked up from where he was reading. And he got up to Genesis chapter 14, the section where Abraham, who's later becomes known as Abraham, uh, meets the priest king called Melchizedek of Salem. The same city, actually, that David now reigns in. His palace is in Jerusalem, Earlier, in thousands of years earlier, was called Salem. So Abraham, in his reading, meets this priest, King Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Melchizedek went out to meet Abraham after his return from the defeat of Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him. And he keeps reading, and there's this, been this battle, and he presents Abraham with bread and wine and blessed him in the name of God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Abraham, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. And this is the reading that he has for the day. Now you've got to remember that David the king had just not long before uh, taken over King Saul. And King Saul had actually got himself into trouble for trying to be a priest king. That's where his downfall occurred. But here in his Bible reading for the day is Melchizedek who was a great priest king. So David thinks to himself, 
There can't be anything intrinsically wrong with this idea of a priest king, surely. I mean, Melchizedek is a great man. David lived about 1,000 BC, and Abraham lived about 1,000 years before that. And halfway between them, about 1,500 BC, was Moses, and God gave the law to Moses. And that said, you can't be a priest king. You can't be a priest and a king at the same time. Now, this wasn't a law that existed in Abraham's time. Certainly wasn't a law for Melchizedek. And as David reflects on all of this, he starts to long for a day that would come where there would be another priest king like Melchizedek. Not just any old priest king. Not one like the priests that he has in his palace that work in the temple. Not those kind of priests. One like Melchizedek. He thinks to himself, perhaps you can't be a Levitical priest king But maybe it could be a Melchizedek priest king. Maybe one of those could come along one day. Maybe Moses' law only applies to the Levitical priests, but not to a Melchizedek priest. He reflects on the spiritual status of the Israelites, and he's very concerned for his people. David thinks about the priests who work for him, and he sees their limitations, these Levitical priests. They're just able to do what is required to make the people holy. But David says, I know what Melchizedek means. It means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Salem. And that also means king of peace. A a priest king like Melchizedek could bring both righteousness and peace, thinks David. And then he thinks a bit more about the problem with the Levitical priests. He says, they're all inbred. Like, they're all from the same family. The Levitical priesthood... Ancestry is everything. You have to be born into the tribe of Levi to become a priest. But Melchizedek, he's not who he is because of his parents. We don't even know who his parents are. You can see it in the passage in Genesis 14. It's it's weird for, for... David thinks to himself, everyone up until Melchizedek, you get all their parents and their descendants and you can see all that. But Melchizedek, he just appears out of nowhere with no parents and then just disappears. We don't even know what happens to him. And that makes him stand out, thinks David. It rings alarm bells. It gets his attention. There's something very eternal about this king priest Melchizedek, thinks David. He seems like a son of God. Imagine if we could have another king priest a bit like that. And then David thinks also, not just about the Israelites, but also the other nations. And he thinks, there's something amazing about this king priest Melchizedek, because he's, he's, he's a king priest over who? Over, over more than just the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people didn't even exist. He actually commissioned, kind of commissioned Abraham and, 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 and blessed him, and that sort of started the Israelites. But Melchizedek sits outside that. Uh, the Levitical priests are priests for the, for, and they serve Yahweh. But Melchizedek is a priest of God Most High, which is the universal name for God. This is the God of heaven and earth, the Jews and the Gentiles. Melchizedek's priesthood would extend much further than just Israel, thinks David. The world needs a king priest like that, he thinks. David was in awe at this passage, at this mysterious ancient priest king, Melchizedek. He was superior to Abraham. Abraham bowed down and gave him a tithe. 
Melchizedek seems amazing. And as David often did in his devotional time, in his reading and praying, he thinks, I want to respond to this by writing a song. Or a psalm. And so the Holy Spirit moved in his heart and started writing some words down. And these are the words that he wrote. He writes, The Lord, as in David's Lord God, says to my Lord, as in this future Melchizedek king priest kind of person, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He keeps writing, the Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountain from the womb of the morning. Like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This became known as Psalm 110. There's a couple more lines in it that you can read. This song of worship, this prayer, this psalm, was sung by Jews for another 1,000 years. All prompted by David in his devotional life, his creative response to the Spirit. Sung for a thousand years until Jesus was born. And all the patterns that we find in Melchizedek, this enigmatic priest king from Genesis 14 that doesn't say much, all the hopes that David saw in him that he writes about in Psalm 110 have their fulfilment in Jesus. He is the perfect ruler of the Hebrew nation and all the people because he is both a king and a priest in the order of Melchizedek, in that he stands outside the Levitical priesthood. He's eternal. And this is what our passage from Hebrews 7 at the end explains to us after recounting this Genesis 14 story and then explaining the limitations of the Levitical priesthood. Listen to the final words of the chapter from verse 26 about how great Jesus is. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, high priest like Jesus, holy, blameless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he has no need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. This he did once and for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests those who are subject to weakness. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is the great king priest. And all those things I said at the start about imagine a king and imagine a priest, you do get that in Jesus. All those patterns land in him. Those themes that we see from Genesis 14, those themes that David meditated on about Melchizedek. Imagine if this king priest could come and just do all the things that the Levitical priests can't do, that they could really connect the people back to God, that he could really rule. Now, you might be thinking, what does all this mean for me? What does this mean for me? 
There's two things I've thought about in terms of how you can apply a passage like Hebrews 7, which we're going to have read out to us. So we're doing everything back to front. Hopefully by reading it out, it will come to life to you in a new way. First of all, I think about an apologetic. So a defence for the Christian faith. One of the most common things that people say about their objection to the church, to Christian faith, is the church. Uh, people look at the church and they see hypocrites and they see um, the clergy who run the church as flawed and limited and sinful and sometimes corrupt. And the Royal Commission into Child Sex Abuse has really highlighted this, this darkness in the church. So pe- people are rightfully disillusioned with the double standards of hypocrisy. And I suspect that many Christians are disillusioned too because of this. They no longer put the church on the pedestal like Western people once did. If you have a distrust towards the institutional church, realise that the Bible agrees with you. The Bible is the first to point out the flaw, flaws in first the priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, as this passage Hebrews says. Look at uh, chapter Chapter 7, verse 27 says, um, the Levitical priests had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. That's how flawed they were. And for his congregation, they were priests who were subject to weakness, it says in verse 28. The priests from the Old Testament were flawed, corrupt, and they had issues. This is how it worked for the Jews. And as far as the New Testament goes, the limitation that we see in the Levitical priests, we also see in the church. I mean, what are the apostles writing to the churches about? Are their problems? You guys have got so many issues. They too were sinners who experienced difficulties in the community, who sin, who, do the, who turn their back on God. But now the priesthood of old has been replaced by one great priest king, Jesus, who is a priest king, Kind of like Melchizedek, but even more incredible because he's the eternal priest king. Melchizedek was a little shadow pointing forward to the true priest king, Jesus. We've had in the media in the last week or so, Mother Teresa being made into a saint. And she did some good works amongst the poor in Calcutta. Um, and, you know, she, she's for many people a great encouragement. But this idea of sainthood where some Christians are elevated to being truly great, you know, blessed people and holy and special more than other people is a concept you don't find in the New Testament. And that's not a way to find resolution to this problem of corruption in the church or the hypocrisy of the clergy. The way to find the resolution is to say, yes, the church is broken and flawed, but there is only one true priest who is not, and that is the true priest king, Jesus. His priesthood is for the Jews and the Gentiles. It is about righteousness and peace. It's because of who he is rather than who his parents are. And his priesthood goes on forever. Jesus the priest king is a great apologetic against the corruption of the church. Look to Jesus and look to the Bible and find that the Bible agrees with this assessment. Secondly, there's a pastoral application to Jesus the priest king in the order of Melchizedek. And the question is, where do you get your peace from? If you are struggling through life and you don't have peace in your soul, 
then the only place you are going to find that peace is in the priest king, Jesus, who's like Melchizedek, who was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. The kind of peace that you get in escapism is only temporary and shallow. It might feel good at the time, but it doesn't last. Think of the person whose house is a complete mess. This might be you. The house is in squalor. The dishes are dirty and mouldy. The clothes stink. There's stuff all over the floor. So, what you do is you just walk out the door and shut the front door. And you walk out and you go to the movies. And you go, oh, I'm just going to ignore the mess in the house. You sit down in the multiplex with your popcorn and your large coke and you watch your movie for two hours. And for two hours you're not thinking about the mess in your house. But then the movie finishes and then you have to go home again and it's still not dealt with. The escape of the movies has not provided any kind of solution for your messy house. The same is true for any kind of escapist techniques for your messy life. The only way to get that peace is through a relationship with the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, Jesus, who is like Melchizedek. You can't find peace by blocking out your issues either. This is a false peace, which is not lasting. Your internal life, your thought life, will just keep churning through those issues as you try and suppress them. Whether you realise it or not, it will come back to haunt you. The only way to get true peace is through the King Priest, Jesus. The truth is we all really need a king. A perfect king. A king to bring our life back in order. A king to bring the whole world back in order. And we really do need a priest. Not a flawed clergyman, but a perfect priest who can take away our sins and represent us before God. What we need is an eternal king priest like Melchizedek, and we have that in Jesus Christ.